Matthew's Gospel tonight, please. The 18th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. We're reading the first nine verses of this portion of God's precious Word. Over the next number of Lord's Day evenings, we want to consider some of the great conversions that are found and recorded in the Old Testament. And for a little while tonight, very simply, we want to look at biblical conversion and what it means. And we're looking at verse 3 of Matthew 18. But let's read from the first verse together. Verse 1, Matthew 18. And reading down, please, to verse number 9. Let's keep our Bibles open. Let's concentrate on God's Word. And let's approach it with reverence and with openness of heart. And let's have no distractions as we sit around the feet of the Savior tonight and his precious word. Matthew 18, verse number 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted... And become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive such one little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Just to interject that idea of causing offense really means causing somebody else to sin or causing somebody else to go astray. And the Lord places a tremendous woe upon those who lead others astray, especially young people. And that's a solemn verse in light of the day and generation that we're living in, whenever so many are being led astray by men and women in places of authority. Woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Verse number 8, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. We know that God will bless this portion of his precious word tonight, his infallible word, his inspired word for his own name's sake. Verse 3 is our text this evening. As we think very simply 
about the subject of conversion, what it means to be converted. And it says in verse 3 that the Son of God says to his disciples concerning this little child whom he has brought to himself, standing now in the midst of the disciples, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray and ask the Lord sincerely and earnestly for help as we think about His Word tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray tonight with all of our hearts that the Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted and the Spirit of God will move in this meeting. We ask, O God, that there might be those who will be brought to the Savior's feet. We pray that Thou wilt encourage the saints and speak, Lord God, to those who need saving grace in their lives. I pray for the help of heaven, for the blessed power of Pentecost. I ask, O God, that Thou wilt fill me with the Spirit. Hide me behind the cross. Uplift the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name and for His glory that we pray. Amen. Amen. Conversion or Christian conversion in its most simple definition is a turning unto God. That's what it means to be converted. It means to turn in newness of life unto the Lord. And conversion is the theme of this text this evening. The Lord Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, the word verily means truly, or certainly, or most assuredly, verily I say unto you. So this is something important. This is something that the Lord is noting. He's not just saying it, but He's marking it down to His disciples. I am saying unto you personally, individually, Truly and assuredly, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And just by way of introduction, there are some very simple and obvious things that lie on the surface of this text. I think the first thing that is very clear from this verse in its context is that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is interested in young people. He's interested in youth. The youth of his day and generation were important to him, especially little children. And that's encouraging for every single one of us tonight in this meeting who have got children of our own or grandchildren or nephews or nieces or anybody involved in children's work. Our Savior shows in this verse that he is interested in young people, especially in the conversion or in the salvation of young people. He wants them to come to Him. In fact, there was another time whenever the Word of God records that the Lord began to uh, bring children to Himself. Parents were bringing their children, mothers bringing their children to the Savior's feet, that He might touch them and bless them. And then some of the disciples misunderstood what was happening and they sought to give the Lord peace and drive the children away. And the Lord said, Suffer or allow the little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. You're maybe a young person tonight in the meeting. Jesus Christ is interested 
in people like you. Whatever your needs might be, wherever you are in life, understand that the Lord loves you and He's interested in the conversion of boys and girls. And then there's another thing that seems to lie on the surface of this text, and it is that salvation is both simple and necessary. God's way of salvation is simple. Verse 2 says, He called a little child unto Him, and then set the child in the midst of them. And the idea of the Lord setting that child in the midst indicates that the Lord lifted that child and brought the child in the midst of the people. And first of all, he called that little child, probably called him by name. And the Lord calls us in the gospel. And whenever we respond to the call of God, he lifts us puts his hands upon us, and brings us into a new place with himself. Salvation is simple. It's responding to the Word of God. Now, it might not necessarily be easy to repent of your sins, but it is plain and it is simple, and it's also very necessary because the Lord begins with the words, accept or unless, except you're converted, or unless you're converted, just as this little child has come to me and turned around and responded to my call, and I have now set him in the midst, unless you likewise respond to the call of God and turn around and come to me, you will never, by any means at all, enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then the third thing that seems to be very obvious from this verse of Scripture is that the way of salvation is the same for everyone. The way a child comes to the Lord is the same way a grown adult comes to the Lord or somebody that maybe is approaching the end of life's journey. Whether you're young or old, whether you're rich or poor, whether Jew or Gentile, religious or irreligious, whether rich or poor, male or female, God's salvation is the same for everyone. And it always has been. And it always will be. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so the Lord's saying, unless you come just the way this little child came, there's no other way to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the Lord is interested in young. Salvation is simple and necessary. And God's salvation is the same for everyone. But it's the little phrase there at the beginning of the text, except ye be converted. I want to speak tonight, as we have said, about conversion and what it is. First of all, and it's a very simple outline this evening, the absolute necessity of conversion. The Word of God is clear, and this verse is abundantly clear, that conversion is not optional for anybody who wants to know God or anybody who wants to enter into God's kingdom. And for anybody that wants to be in heaven someday, there's no other way other than being converted. It's absolutely fundamental to the Christian message that men and women and young people, if they want to know God and enter into a relationship with God and one day be in heaven, they must at some point 
on their life on this earth experience conversion. Why is that? It's because all of us are strangers. Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, sometimes whenever the Bible speaks about the kingdom in the spiritual sense, it uses the terminology, the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes it uses the terminology, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is a present reality. Often whenever we think about the kingdom of heaven, we think about a kingdom that is yet future. And yes, there's coming a day whenever in a real sense, faith will give way to sight and we will personally and physically enter into the immediate presence of God in heaven. But whenever a person is born again or converted, at that moment they immediately enter into a new kingdom. They're brought out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's marvelous light. And the Son of God says, unless you're converted, you cannot be part of my kingdom. In other words, you're outside of it, naturally speaking. Nobody enters into the family and fold of God except by being converted. And that indicates that we are naturally in and of ourselves outside of God's family, outside of God's kingdom. Our sins and our sin nature has separated us from God. And so we have to say, like Robert Murray McShane's great hymn, even if we are converted, there was once a time whenever we were strangers to grace and to God. And maybe tonight in this meeting, or some that are listening in online, you have to acknowledge that you are a stranger to God. You're outside of God's family. You're outside of God's kingdom in a spiritual manner. You do not really know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And unless you're converted, you will not only remain outside of God's kingdom in time, but for all of eternity, forever, world without end, outside of God's kingdom. And perhaps the easiest way to determine whether or not you are a stranger to God is to ask yourself this question. Do I really know God personally? Is God a reality in my life? Because that's what God's salvation brings us into, the knowledge, the experimental knowledge of God. John 17, before the Lord went to the cross, he prayed his great prayer, his high priestly prayer. And in the third verse, he says, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. You see, whenever a person is converted and brought into the kingdom of God, they are brought into union with God, and God is real in them and real to them. And so tonight I'm asking you, do you know the Lord personally? Not just know about Him, not just able to quote a few well-known Bible verses, but do you know God as your Father? Do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you know the Holy Spirit as your Comforter? Is the triune God of heaven real to you tonight? Salvation and conversion is an absolute necessity because we are strangers. 
It's also a necessity because we are transgressors. My Bible tells me tonight that we are all breakers of God's law. All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. And 1 John 3 and verse 4 says that sin is the transgression of the law. We are sinners by nature. David said he was born in sin and shapen in iniquity. And consequently, we are sinners by practice. The reality is that whenever we sin, we choose to sin. Sometimes we try to absolve ourselves of responsibility. But so much of the sins that we commit are sins that are committed by choice. We might only premeditate for a split second, or it might be a number of minutes, or maybe even a number of days or months. But all sin, I believe, to one degree or another, is sin that is committed because of our nature, by choice. We choose to live without God. We choose to go our own way. We choose to reject God's salvation. And friends, tonight this is especially serious whenever a person is familiar with what the Word of God teaches. Sin is transgression of the law. And if we are well aware of God's law and God's Word and God's gospel, but we go on sinning and breaking it and not responding to the call of God and choosing to transgress God's law, and we do that knowingly, that is a very serious thing. And it is a more serious thing still whenever a professing Christian chooses habitually to transgress the law of God. Maybe it's an indicator that they're still really outside of God's family and God's kingdom. We need to be converted because we're strangers. We need to be converted because we're transgressors. Furthermore, we need to be converted because we are wanderers. James chapter 5 and verse 19, the last verses in the epistle of James, James says this, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, go astray. If any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. And this is speaking about the soul winner. The man or the woman who under God is used by God to pray for and witness to and reach the lost and is the instrument in the hand of God in bringing a person to faith in Jesus Christ. And conversion, according to James 5, 19 and 20, is to be delivered from the error of one's ways. If somebody errs from the truth, turns their back on the truth, deviates from the truth, and then they're converted, they're brought back into the way of truth. So to uh, be converted is indicative of being brought into the right way. So that therefore indicates that before a person is converted, they're going the wrong way. Now it might seem to be the right way. The Bible says there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof for the ways of death. Have you ever been convinced in your own heart 
that you're going the right direction. And somebody says to you, listen, I think you're going the wrong way. It might be somebody sitting in the back seat of the car or the passenger seat, and they say to you, are you sure this is the right way? It just doesn't seem right. And you're convinced you're going the right way. And maybe your pride gets offended, and you get irritable because you don't like somebody telling you or even suggesting that you're not on the right pathway, you're not on the right road. Because it seems the right way to you. It seems the prudent way to go. And the Bible says there's a way that seemeth right unto a man. We are living in a day where everybody does that which seems to be right in their own eyes. But sadly for multitudes, it's not the right way at all. It, it might seem to be the prudent way. It might as well be the popular way. Matthew 7, the Son of God, spoke about two roads. One is narrow and it leads to life, and the, the gate is very straight or very tight. It really means you can bring none of your sin or your baggage with you, and you have to bend yourself low and humble yourself to enter in through that tiny little gate. But the other way is broad, and the gate is wide. It leads to destruction, but the Bible says it's very popular. Many are traveling in that road. It's the prudent way. It's maybe the popular way. It's maybe even, naturally speaking, the preferable way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned. Everyone to his, his own way, this idea of turning from the, the pathway of truth and righteousness because it's too straight and it seems too hard and it's too narrow and it's too restrictive and it's not popular and it's not prudent and it's, it's not acceptable. So many prefer to go their own way, do their own thing. But it's also a very perilous way. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof for the ways of death. And sometimes that's the problem. People don't really think about the end result of a course of action that they take. Somebody taking their first drink, smoking their first joint, maybe visiting a, a dark website for the first time. They never think about the end result in a, a year's time or a decade's time. Where is this all going to end for me or even for my family? And especially whenever... We reach our journey's end in this life. The road that we've been traveling on, the road that you're on tonight, where will it end? Moses says that we should consider our latter ends. Think about where we're going. Conversion. The absolute necessity of conversion. Second thought is this. The biblical nature of conversion. Maybe one of the most remarkable and Unexpected conversions in the Bible is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He was a man who really had his back against the kingdom of God. Thought he was going the right way, mind you. He was going the popular way as far as Jewish culture was concerned. But on the road to Damascus, he discovered he was going the wrong way. And all of a sudden, he was converted. The Lord spoke from glory. A light shone. He fell on his knees. His heart was opened. He surrendered his, 
his life to the Lord. I can remember many years ago in a primary school in Port Stewart speaking in a school assembly to all of the children. I'd been there many times before and would be there many times after, but this particular day there was a, a standing teacher sitting at the side of the, of the assembly hall, and he was speaking about the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus, a man that was going the wrong way and made a U-turn and entered into newness of life. And I left the assembly before it fully ended because they were staying on for some other things and I, I excused myself and I was making my way out of the school towards where my car was parked. I heard somebody shouting for me and I turned around and this new teacher was running out after me and I thought, boy, I've said something that's offended her. Maybe I've, I've said something she didn't like and she said to me, when she put her hand on my back, she says, I can't believe you've spoken that this morning. And I thought, okay, here we go. And she says, that's remarkable. She says, I was speaking about that very portion yesterday to my class. I was speaking about transformation. And we talked about the caterpillar turning into the butterfly. And then I talked about Saul being converted and becoming the apostle Paul. And she says, I can't believe that you came in, we've never met before, and you've spoke about the conversion of Saul. And I said, it is remarkable. And then I asked her, have you ever been converted yourself? And she said that she hadn't. And she got a little bit teary there in the, in the school playground, and she, she just couldn't believe what had happened. And there are many in her world tonight that are just like that woman. They can talk about conversion. They can maybe see the need for conversion in the lives of others. They can maybe even explain what conversion is to a greater or a lesser degree. But the challenge is, have you ever been converted yourself? Have you ever been turned around? Has the Lord ever opened your eyes and opened your heart? As we think about the nature of conversion, we have to begin certainly with God's sovereignty. Can't escape that. Salvation is of the Lord. Conversion is God's work. In recent days, we hear a lot about conversion therapy, and certain counselors and politicians and leaders in society are, are wanting a, a blanket ban on what they call conversion therapy. And I think there's a, a few ways that we could look at that. I think, first of all, it, it presupposes that naturally man hates the idea of his fellow man being converted especially from a life of sin. If something is wrong and wicked and immoral and anti-God, by and large, society does not want that person to change or be delivered. It might be perversion or sexual immorality, whatever it is. And a young person growing up feels instinctively that this is not the right thing. This world of ours does not want them to change. The world hates the idea of conversion, especially if it's being converted to God. But whenever we think about this whole idea of conversion therapy as well, really, in the light of God's Word, it's a nonsense. Because there's no pastor, and there's no evangelist, and there's no minister, and there's no individual that is able to convert somebody else into a life of re relationship with God. I could talk until I'm blue in the face, but 
Salvation and conversion is God's work. It's God's prerogative. I could open the Bible and explain the Word of God and pray for you from now until doomsday, but I cannot convert anyone. And so there's no such thing really as conversion therapy. Conversion is God's work, and we see that very clearly back there in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6 and verse 9 and verse number 10. And verse 10 of Isaiah 6 is quoted four times in the New Testament, and so it's a very important verse. The Lord says to Isaiah, Go, tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy, shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. And the whole thinking behind that text of Scripture is that conversion is impossible without the Spirit of God. Isaiah, you can go to that people and you can preach to them and show them my word and my ways, but they will not be converted unless I do the work. Salvation and conversion is God's work. Over there in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, in chapter 15 and verse number 3, we read about the conversion of the Gentiles causing great joy unto all the brethren. And the fact that the Holy Spirit highlights the conversion of the Gentiles, a fulfillment, of course, of prophecy, it also infers that something unprecedented has happened, something strange and something unusual, supernatural has happened, that these Gentiles, these people that have sat in darkness have now seen a great light and they have come to trust in the God of Israel, the God of heaven, the God who sent the Son to come into this world to go to a cross, the conversion of the Gentiles. It seems to indicate that something strange has happened, and indeed it had. It was affected by God Himself. Conversion has a sovereign aspect to it. We can't forsake the idea as well of man's responsibility. Duncan Campbell of the Faith Mission used to say, I don't believe in any concept of God's sovereignty that nullifies my responsibility. And I believe that's true. I believe the Bible very clearly teaches that God is sovereign. He's Lord over all. But at the same time, it plainly teaches that we are accountable to God and responsible to God, and God calls us to trust in Him. He calls us to repentance. He offers us mercy. Now, how you reconcile the two things, something that our little finite minds cannot do. But really, we don't have to reconcile friends at all. The Word of God plainly teaches both. Man has a responsibility to hear. Isaiah 6 speaks about the need to hear, the need to listen. And the onus is put on the individual. They need to listen. And whenever the Lord wrote to the seven churches in Asia Minor, He said, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Hearing is fundamental. Hearing 
the Word of God. People will never be converted unless they listen to the Word of God and trust in the God of the Word. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God is instrumental. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 19:7 that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. God uses means. He uses His Word, His law, to bring people to a place of hearing their need and hearing the truth. And then there's also the responsibility of seeing. Isaiah 6.10 speaks about that as well. A, a person, if they're going to be converted, they need to see their need to be converted. They need to see themselves as individuals lost and in danger of perishing forever. And then to see the sufficiency of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Isaiah 6.10 not only speaks about hearing and seeing, but it also speaks about understanding. People need to understand the gospel and understand something of the Word of God. Do you remember the, the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts chapter 8 and verse 30, whenever Philip found him there in the, in the desert, he ran and he met and he saw this eunuch reading the Word of God for himself. Casting his eye down through the Scriptures, it was the book of Isaiah chapter 53, but he couldn't really see it. He couldn't understand it. And Philip says, Understandest what thou readest? And he says, How can I accept some man teach me? And Philip jumped up in beside him into the chariot and, and began to show that this one that is led as a lamb to the slaughter was the Lord Jesus Christ. As a sheep before her shears was dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. There's the Lord in Pilate's judgment hall, and he's answering not a word. And then he's wounded for our transgressions, he's bruised for our iniquities, and he gets him to the cross. And he shows him the shed blood. And he shows him that this man that came from heaven into the world went to a cross to suffer and bleed and die. I wonder tonight, do you understand the gospel? Do you understand that you need God's salvation? Do you understand that Jesus Christ alone can save? That he alone has paid the price on the cross? And that you need to trust him as your Savior? I wonder tonight, can you hear the call of God in your life? Can you see your need? Can you understand the gospel? And then, of course, there needs as well to be a turning. James 5 and 19 speaks about that, about somebody erring from the truth and then being converted. And the word convert there, it literally means to turn. Turning back into the way of truth and turning into the way of righteousness, and that involves faith. And sometimes we can get very confused about faith, but the Lord says that except ye be converted and become as little children, it's just a childlike faith. You say, well, there's many things in the Bible I don't understand. Well, you can join the club. But if you understand that Jesus Christ is God's Son, He shed His blood and died and rose again and can save you, then you just put your faith in Him. The idea of faith means to not only believe intellectually, but to trust, to rest upon and to rely upon Him, to trust in Christ and Christ alone as He is offered to us in the gospel. I wonder tonight if you ever put your faith 
in the Son of God? Have you ever trusted Him? Has there been a time in your life whenever you've turned from your sin and you've said to the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm now trusting you as my Savior. I believe that you died for my sins. And Lord, I'm trusting you to save me. I'm not only giving you my sin, but I'm giving you my life and I'm asking you to be my Savior. I'm trusting you. And along with that comes repentance. In the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 3, whenever Peter was preaching, he said, Repent ye therefore and be converted. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So if a person is to be converted, there needs, yes, to be faith, just a childlike faith, but also a repentance from sin, turning from sin, and an endeavor after new obedience. And according to Acts chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, repentance should be our response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul has been speaking about the Lord's suffering in verse 18. That's the cross. And the Lord fulfilling the great Old Testament prophecies. And then he he calls his hearers after bringing them to the cross, now you need to repent and turn from that sin that nailed your Savior to a tree. The biblical nature of conversion, the absolute necessity of conversion very quickly, the primary results of conversion. What happens whenever a man or a woman or a young person or a child is converted? Well, many wonderful things happen. But whenever we think about some of the principal texts that speak about conversion, we've mentioned them tonight, it seems that there are three things that are principal or primary results. And the first thing is that whenever a person is converted, they enter into God's kingdom. Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of God. Just as a person, whenever they're born again, enters the kingdom of God and the new birth and conversion, they all come together in a wonderful way. And so whenever a person is converted, in a moment of time, at a decisive moment in their life, they enter into God's kingdom. God becomes their father. God's family becomes their family. God becomes their friend rather than being an enemy. Robert Louis Stevenson, famous for writing Treasure Island and Kidnapped, I think was another book that he wrote, was converted in life. And he made this statement, he says, When Christ came into my life, I came about like a well-handled ship. That's what conversion is. When Christ came into my life, I came about like a well-handled ship. The Lord just graciously and gently turned my life around and began to guide me and direct me on the way that leads to heaven and the way that leads to home. Whenever a person is converted, they enter into the kingdom of God. Whenever a person is converted, their sins are blotted out. That's what Peter said in Acts 3.19, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. And the idea of blotting out sin indicates sins are covered. God says through the prophet Isaiah, I have blotted out as a thick cloud all of thy transgressions. 
I've cast your sins into the depths of the sea. I've put your sins behind my back. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Or as this great text says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. No, God can see everything. But we could say there's maybe some things that God chooses not to see. God chooses not to see our sins whenever they are under the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood blots out as a thick cloud all of our transgressions. So it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or what your past is or even at this moment what your present is. There's cleansing in the blood of the Son of God to wash away a lifetime of sinning. James chapter 5 and verse number 20, speaking about conversion, puts it this way, that they shall be saved and a multitude of sins shall be hidden. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And then there's one third thing that conversion results in. Not just entering into heaven. Not just having our sins blotted out. But James 5.20, whenever a person is converted and a sinner is converted from the error of the way, a soul shall be saved from death. Ezekiel said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son of God in Matthew 10, 28 said, Fear not them which kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him which hath power to destroy both body and soul in hell. And hell's real. The Son of God spoke about it so often. John calls it the second death in Revelation 20, 14. But according to James 5 and 20, whenever a person is converted, they are saved. Their soul is saved from death. And if we're Christians tonight, we should have a burden and a desire that others might be converted as well. We ought to try to reach them and win them with the gospel and pray for them and live our lives before them and let our light shine before men. Let me tell you tonight that if you're not converted, you're lost. You're in your sins. You're outside of God's kingdom. You're bound for a lost eternity. And you need to be converted. One final thought and we're finished. We've thought about the absolute necessity of conversion, the biblical nature of conversion, the primary results of conversion one last thought and we're finished. The admissible evidence for conversion. If you were in court tonight being charged with having at one time in your life been converted, would there be sufficient evidence to convict you of having been converted? Much evidence today might be declared as inadmissible evidence. You know, sometimes whenever a person is dragged before the courts and evidence is brought against them and a, a lawyer or a barrister gets up and they bring the evidence, sometimes it might be declared by the judge, that sir, that madam is inadmissible evidence. 
And they might mean by that something like this. It's not first-hand evidence. It's maybe second-hand or third-hand evidence. It's maybe only hearsay. It's not conclusive and it's, it's not concrete and it's inadmissible and we need to put it to one side. We can't look at it. Inadmissible evidence. And so many, I believe, today are pronounced to be saved and on their way to heaven and even whenever they die in heaven. And sometimes it's second-hand or even third-hand information. The person that died mightn't have even been a professing Christian. They maybe didn't profess to have been converted. They maybe frowned at the idea of conversion. But people take it that they were converted because maybe a minister or a priest or a pastor stands up and says, well, they're in heaven and they knew the Lord, whatever it might be. But the person themselves maybe never professed such a thing. And then some people can make a confession that counts for very little. Way back in the years 16 and 66, a Frenchman by the name of Robert Schubert confessed that he was the man who started the Great Fire of London. He said, I threw a fire bomb through a, the window of a local bakery. And that's how the Great Fire of London started, and of course, rightfully so. And on his confession, he was drawn before the magistrates, and all of the evidence was correlated. And it was found that he wasn't even in London. In fact, he wasn't even in England whenever the fire broke out. He was across the water. And then whenever they ask about the particular bakery, he certainly, if he was out of the country, wasn't even near it. And it was concluded that there were no windows in the bakery that he was speaking of. And he was also severely crippled and wouldn't have had the ability, they believed, to throw a fireball through the window anyway. But he consisted and insisted that he was the one that did it. And strange to say that he was, in spite of all of the evidence, was consigned to hanging. Even though all of the evidence was stacked against him. Friends, tonight the judge of all the earth will do right. Regardless of what we profess or what others say about us, God in heaven tonight deals in realities. And he says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. You see, friends, tonight conversion is real. I don't believe tonight you can really hide it for all that long. What's on the inside inevitably comes to the surface, and if a person has truly been converted, I believe that the Lord is the one who lights the candle and sets it upon a lampstand, and it's seen. He doesn't hide his converts under bushels. True conversion is visible. The person who's been converted is now changed, and they're going a different direction from the world. Just like the clean fish in Scripture has got fins and scales so it can swim upstream, go against the tide and go against the current. Whenever a person's converted, they turn around and they begin to go against the current of this world. And conversion as well should be lasting. Someone says it's like shoe leather. It, it wears well. And whenever a person is truly converted, it's real and it's visible and it's lasting. John Calvin said true conversion is proved by the constant tenor of the life. 
So I ask you in closing, have you been converted? And if you haven't been converted, what about now? You can be converted tonight. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and turn from your sins. A couple of years ago, our brother Chris Kellen here gave me a, a book. It was the biography of a great servant of Christ, a man called Sam Hadley, who was the proprietor of what was called the Water Street Mission in downtown New York City. They tried to reach drunkards, down and outs, and people who were penniless and living on the streets. And, and one night a man came into the mission. It was a very busy time of the year. And as this man sat down and told his life story, it became evident that he certainly hadn't always been a down and out. In fact, as a, as a young man, he had been a, a, a member of Abraham Lincoln's cabinet. But now he was down and out. He had turned aside from truth and from righteousness and entered into a life of sin. And he wanted a, a room to stay in the mission. But Mr. Hadley says we're absolutely filled at capacity. We couldn't possibly take anybody else in. And so with a heavy heart, that man turned around and went his way into the, the dark streets of New York City in that winter's night and crawled down under one of the great trestles of the Brooklyn Bridge, made his bed for the night. Sam Hadley went home and was troubled that he had turned this man away. He had done it against his own will or his own desires. It was simply impossible for him to bring anybody else in. But at three o'clock in the morning, he couldn't sleep, and he went out into New York City and began to walk the streets. It was customary for many people to sleep under bridges to get a little bit of shelter. And at last, under the Brooklyn Bridge, he found this individual. He took him home. He bathed him. He washed him. He fed him. He gave him a bed to sleep in. He gave him a hearty breakfast. And the next night, that man found his way back into the mission. There was a gospel meeting on, a service, singing and praise and worship and prayer, and then the simple preaching of the gospel. And at the end of the meeting, that man cried out at the penitent rail, as they called it, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And instantaneously, he was converted. He, he got up off his knees. He was a new man. He never drank again. He joined the church. He became an upstanding member of society. He became a useful Christian. And he went back to his old work. His life changed forever converted in a moment of time. Have you ever been converted? I trust tonight that you'll call upon the Lord and that, that little child that the Lord called, you'll come to the Savior. Let him lift you and set you in a new place and enter into newness of life. May God bless you richly. Thank you so much for your attention this evening.